Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. From the Palmetto Swamps, to the Piney Woods, to the Oak Flats, you're listening to the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast. Hey guys, on this week's episode of the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast, it's all about hunting small parcels of land, small tract hunting tactics. So we're talking about hunting 100 acres and under, 50 acres and under, maybe 25 acres and under. You would not believe the size and quality of some of the deer that can be found on pieces of property that you drive past and you say to yourself, there's no way there's anything in there. So this whole episode is about the do's and don'ts of hunting small tract properties. We're coming to you a little later this week than usual. With yesterday being Veterans Day, we decided to hold off and release an episode on Tuesday instead, but we wanted to say a huge thank you to the men and women that have served this great country, and we owe you a debt of gratitude that we can never repay. So thank you for everything you've done for serving our country. Before we get started this week, we want to give a huge thanks to our sponsors. Steve German's Taxidermy Art, they're the only taxidermist that's made it easier for you to transport your deer back into the state of Louisiana by teaming up with Ty's Taxidermy in Orange, Texas as a drop-off point for you to drop off your deer on your way back into the state to circumvent the CWD regulations. And then also very exciting news for us this week. We've teamed up with Cousin Smokehouse to give you an offer that is really unmatched. If you've been listening to the podcast and have been wondering what Cousin's Jerky tastes like, for the whole month of November, you can now get it for 25% off on their website, CousinSmokehouse.com. Use the promo code LABH25. You can get 25% off your entire order of Cousin Smokehouse Jerky, their new Cane Fire flavor, or their original pork jerky. So make sure to take advantage of that discount and try out that jerky because I promise you it's something you're going to want to carry in your hunting bag moving forward. So with that being said, let's get started on this week's episode. You know, when I first reached out to you, 
I had no intention on ever being part of this <laughs> at all. Yeah. It, it was more so, hey, really, there's, I think as hunters, we all struggle with things. And I was really reaching out for maybe there might be somebody that's doing something just like I am that I might gain some info from. Yeah, that's why. Yeah, that's that is you just explained the whole podcast. That's why we do it. Yeah. And um, and so I, I joked with, uh, with Travis Links earlier. He's uh, he was supposed to join us today and he's not able to make it. So it's just you and I this afternoon. Uh-huh. Um, but I joked with him earlier. I said, yeah, I've got. I've got Andrew. He's going to come down, uh, and we're going to do a podcast on hunting small tracts of land. And you know, I don't. I could have five. I've had five people in the podcast. It gets confusing for the for the listener because nobody knows who's talking. And I've had you know I, I've thought about doing podcasts where it's just me, and then I pull myself away from that idea and think that's terrible. And nobody wants to hear me talk for an hour. So anyway, what I, I was joking with Travis Links earlier about how. You, um, I don't know exactly how I put it. I was like, yeah, I guess he thinks we just, you know, we only have people that have done something or big name or whatever on the show. And I was like, that's not true at all. I just want average Joe people because that's who is truly relatable to, um, to the, our listener. If, I mean, Harmon, I love you to death, man. There's not a lot of people killing 19 animals a year with a trad bow, mm-hmm. right? That's, that's kind of hard to, it's hard to, uh, to relate to. And, and so, um, you know, when you reached out to me and this is kind of a message for everybody else listening as well. If, if you reach out and we talk about it, um, about podcast topics or you ask me questions or whatever, nine times out of 10, I'll ask you for your phone number and I want to talk to you. And what I'm trying to gauge is, do you communicate well? Do you have uh, a, I don't want to say a unique way of thinking, but but are you able to uh, say your thoughts clearly to where if I were to bring you on the show as a nobody, and by the way, I'm a nobody, Locke's a nobody, Travis is a nobody, none of us have ever done anything. We all have, we're all regular guys, we're regular jobs, we don't get paid to do any of this stuff. And we like to put arrows through deer and we like to talk about doing that. And so we're not any special people. And so I want to bring other non-special people on and let's go be relatable to our entire audience of average Joe bow hunters that can learn because, um, you know, I, my premise of the, the whole show is, and this literally keeps me up at night sometimes trying to anticipate the questions people have in their minds before they've ever even asked them. Can we solve a problem that you haven't even come across yet to where when you come across it, you're like, oh, they talked about that on episode 17, you know, and it might be, you know, do mock scrapes work. It might be, how do I go from, how do I feel comfortable? Like you asked me earlier, how do I get comfortable going out of a summit Viper with a, with a bar on the front to go into an open shot style stand? How, how long does that take for you to get comfortable doing it? These are small questions that have long answers behind them um, that could totally change the way that you hunt, you know? Exactly. I mean, when going back to when I reached out to you and, you know, just sending an email and you called me, we discussed this and then you asked me coming on here, I, I started thinking about that and I'm like, you know, I talked to some of my buddies that I hunt with and they've had success. And I mean, I just shot my biggest deer last season. I mean, and yeah, 
it, by a lot of people's standards, I mean, 115 inch deer. Yeah, it's nice, but a lot of people with better. And it's, you know, I'm, I, I think to my, I'm hard on myself when it comes to hunting mm-hmm. and I'm like, well, you know, I'm, I, I'm way down on the totem pole when it comes to all this stuff, but it's, I think it's a lot of trial and error and things that, you know, there's a lot of people that still want to know how this is all approached. Mm -hmm. And there's some people that are, when it comes to hunting small properties, it could be you're hunting three acres. You could be hunting 75 acres. Yeah. And that's, and that's what we're going to talk about today, um, is small tract hunting, right? And, and by the way, everybody listening, this is a little different start off to the podcast than we usually do. Normally it's a, Hey guys, we're here with so-and-so talking about so-and-so and and then we break into it. But this, y'all don't know this, but I usually start recording sometimes 10, 15 and 20 minutes before I actually do an intro to the podcast, you know? And, um, but we're here right now with Andrew Spivey, who's from the St. Francisville area and, um, we're going to be talking about small tract hunting. He reached out to me, I don't know, two months ago. Yeah, roughly. And it was just a Facebook message and it was something about email. Uh, I, it was an email. Yeah, that I, was right. I'm not even, I don't do social media or anything yeah. like I do stuff the hard way. And so, and so he, he sent us an email and, um, I think I got your email when I was driving. I don't like to, I don't like to, I can't say I don't text and drive. I don't like to email response and drive, you know, paragraphs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I called you cause I had a couple hour drive ahead of me and you know, we, we talked about a lot. You seem like a real smart guy and you are in the reason, the reason I pulled you on the show was because you are in a position that I think a lot of people can relate to in your bow hunting career, which is you've had some success. You've killed a few deer. Um, you are at a new level of obsession with it in your mind and you're kind of wondering what's, what do we do to get to the next level? What are the other pieces of this puzzle to where this isn't such a painful or, uh, unsuccessful process? You know, I don't want to, I don't want to get blown five times in the stand to kill one deer, you know, that type of stuff. Well, and see, that's, that's a thing that I'm starting to, um, trying to figure out i mean if there could be a award for the amount of does and young bucks harvested by yeah. a person oh i'd be the king of that <laughs> that's all right <laughs> but that's just you know it's like y'all have said i love on, shooting a doe by the way oh yeah but it's like how you've said on other podcasts you know if you're hunting properties where there's not a 130 inch deer mm-hmm. anywhere you know around you, you're just not going to kill him yeah. So it's, you know, that's kind of been the areas that I've hunted until the past, I'd say, four years or so. And, you know, what you had just mentioned about uh, not getting winded, things like that. You know, hunting these small areas, um, like at my home farm in Zachary, you know, we're kind of on the outskirts. It's a lot of cattle country and bottomland hardwoods and pasture mixed in between. That kind of area um, where I'm physically at, and then a few other small tracks I've hunted, these deer are super smart, Mm -hmm. way more than, um, you know, somewhere just way out in the boonies somewhere. And what I found is, so I used to be super OCD about scent. I mean, I've done, you name it, I've done it. 
basically trying to be a step of, ahead of these deer, getting the stand three hours before the sun comes up, sitting there. Mm-hmm. And it just, it wouldn't be, you know, successful. It does nothing. And then, you know, trying to uh, keep my scent down, things like that. And it got to a point where I was like, you know what? This is kind of ridiculous. And I've had buddies tell me, so if you got to take a leak, take a leak off the end of your stand. It's not, it's not going to affect anything. And you yeah. know, it's really funny because last week I had a two and a half year old eight point bumping a couple does and a spike. I just finished taking a leak and literally I could have spit on that buck and he was standing under my stand and he did not win me or didn't even care. Well, I mean, not only that, but, um, I mean, I, I, if I have to pee in the woods, I will, I'll look for a scrape to pee in. I will. I will look on the ground for a scrape to pee in. I've had pictures of, of the deer that I was trying to kill come up an hour, two, three hours after I pee in one in an evening hunt. He shows up at nine o'clock at night, smells it, you know, crawls over the top of it and puts his back hind legs together, pisses right on top of me. Yeah. Right. And you know, ammonia and urine, I don't know if it, if they can, you know, we have a tendency to, Give deer credit for stuff that we might feel sound strange, guilty about, mm-hmm. right? Something we feel um, self-conscious about. And a deer doesn't have a library of sense in his head where he says, oh, this is a raccoon. This is a possum. Uh, this is a 245-pound, two man, right? There isn't a urine scent <laughs> in his scent <laughs> library in his head. And so, I mean, to make it sound kind of simple piss is piss yeah right i mean it might sound it might sound it might smell different when a doe is in an estrus versus us peeing in a scrape but but um i don't think personally that it is a deterrent you know i'm sure it smells different than deer piss that they smell from another deer but i don't think it smells so different that he's like oh that's weird get me out of here you know um but then again like last week's episode and i'll just negate myself with everything i just said since scrapes are a, the, a way to communicate through scent, a lot of times the deer has the answers he's looking for before he ever walks over that scrape. He might be 50 yards downwind of it. And so, you know, I, I've said that I've peed in scrapes and had deer right after it. There may very may well be a lot of scrapes I've peed in uh, over the years where a deer comes 25 yards downwind. I don't have him on camera. And he says, nope, I'm not coming back to that. You know, so we don't know this. We got to remember, this is the game. This is the fun part for us. This is the strategy. This is the the cat and mouse. Is the We don't just want to see a deer and shoot it. We want to figure out what it's thinking, cut him off, pattern him, and all that. You know, so uh, we don't have all the answers. That's why it's such a great game, you know. That's another thing it, uh, I was thinking about is, so we purchased my place in 2016, spring, uh, spring of 2016. Um, moved from Prairieville out there to Zachary and, um, we had a lot of unexpected things we're having to take care of. I mean, it's, it's small, you know, it's seven acres, literally the whole property. And it's, you know, I have access to both neighboring properties, probably totals 150, but Mm -hmm. you know, half is pasture, half is hardwoods. And, you know, talking to the cattle farmers around there and people that used to hunt the property, um, I quickly learned that there was a 150 inch 14 point that Mm -hmm. was shot literally that January, like 
the primitive right before the season ended. And um, I got to talking with a guy that killed him, and, you know, I let him hunt with me on my place next year and all that. We're still friends and um, saw the deer. And then I, I started thinking back, and I remembered back in 2015 because one of my other best friends shot um, – 160 inch on one of our uh, public land trips and I remember number one biggest buck in the state um, was killed by a cattle farmer in Zachary it was Mm -hmm. 170 something inch and I started looking at these two deer and they almost look identical because on their g2 there's this kicker coming off and Mm -hmm. they both have them what turns out this old farmer he shot that deer literally half mile from my house and so it's close genetics but what's funny is early season those big deer aren't there mm-hmm. they, it's, they go there for reprieve yes yeah it's usually a lot of two and a half year old and younger bucks yeah a lot of does and uh that first year uh that spring when we got the place i ran a camera a little bit but then we had the flood obviously and you know, I, th- I thought that uh, everything was okay after that because, you know, we were having deer coming out the woods as soon as the water receded and all that. But um, seeing the camera this year, a lot of fawns. And so I thought, wow, you know, I think the flood really did hurt things. Mm-hmm. Um, but trying to figure out, you know, why those bucks, you know, where do they go? And obviously you're restricted to a small area so it's not like you can go wander off and go find them um so the thing i've kind of found is you really have to key key in on does Mm -hmm. and food source i mean you know some people you know use feed some don't i tried it for a year and that's really hard to hunt without it you know it's not like public land where you know the deer just they grow up not eating corn Mm -hmm. and yeah, I've got well, I've got a different opinion on that on small pieces of property, but and we'll talk about that in a minute. Keep, I, have you had success feeding on your small track? Yes, and the, it's so I try to key in on feed trees first. Mm-hmm. One thing I didn't know, and I don't know why this was, but I, I'm always walking around the property. I I try to be very low key about it. I try to be on the edges of, of the property instead of going mm-hmm. in because it's the real thick woods. It's a lot of thick privet. Um, a lot of it was old pasture 20 years ago, and now it's just grown up tallow on the neighbor's places that I have access to. And then a lot of it's like bottomland hardwoods with thick, thick palmettos. And what I found the past couple of seasons, so when I first season of 2016, when I'd go in – I was still in a real OCD mode about my hunting and trying to be careful, but trying to take the quietest way in mm-hmm. on trails I knew. And some days I'd go in literally at noon, middle of the week, go slip in, make a bow hunt. And as soon as I walked out of the pasture into the woods at noon, I was jumping deer right on the edge because they were betting that close to feed sources. And it was frustrating because it seemed like every step I tried to take, I screwed something up. <laughs> that, that I mean, the, you can, it doesn't get put any better than that. That's exactly how it feels. You feel very self-conscious, like you ruined something. Um, and I think it's important to consider, let's compare, 
I don't know, let's call small track deer and let's call uh, country deer, mm-hmm. all right? Let's call a deer that has uh, technically an unlimited home range, right? The limiting factor is how far he wants to go, not his habitat, okay? That's the difference between a small track deer. And when I say small track, we can say 100, 100 acres and under. You can say 50 acres and under. I've killed deer in three acres. I've killed deer on pieces of property that um, were no bigger than three or four acres, and hunt it, it, different different things need to be taken into consideration. Number one, and this is kind of a bit major point I wanted to make in this podcast is that as bow hunters, we are only able to hunt at probably maximum one acre at a time. Eff- effectively, I'm talking kill range, see, shoot, kill, maybe one acre. Okay, um, and that's that might be stretching it. And uh, I mean, I'm I'm giving us a lot of credit there that we'd be able to shoot from one side of an acre to another right but the um the other thing is that it doesn't matter how big your property is you're always hunting at 50 yards at a time okay um like Harmon and i spoke about on on the episode last week you can have a totally different hunt 100 yards away from your stand in fact a lot of the small acre tracks of land that i hunt i will B, I use that I use that app called Hunt Stand a lot for stand locations and wind direction, and I will be unknowingly only eighty yards away from another place that I like to hunt, and I I have this feeling about it like it's the the promised land, like it's going to be the greatest hunting spot I've ever been in. I set a, a, a little pin on my app, and I'm like, oh my god, I'm only seventy nine yards from where I killed this deer last year, right? And it. It, it doesn't take a lot. You don't have to go half a mile away to have a different hunt. Sometimes you just have to hunt on the other side of the same tree, you know, to have a totally different hunt. And so the biggest thing for me is you always are hunting as a bow hunter. doesn't matter how many acres you're hunting. You're always only hunting 50 yards at a time, period. The difference between a large track and a small track, like I said, is the effective area that a deer can travel Okay, is the limiting factor the deer or the boundary of the property? Okay, because if you're hunting out in the country, it doesn't matter how many clubs are around you, how many homes are around you, how much uh, how much land Wirehouser has around you. If a deer has woods, you can just assume he can go and go and go and go and go until he doesn't want to. In fact, Betsy Dutrois told us that he they had a deer that they had tracked that would go 12 miles. He did it twice. He would go 12 miles and then come back. 12 miles and then come back. And the effective home range, and I'm just straight up repeating what she said here, the effective home range of a deer in the Tinsaw Parish area where they were doing that study is only 300-plus acres, just barely over 300. They have deer that in their whole time they've ever been um, radio-collared or whatever, they never went out of 300-acre circle. Well, so let's apply that same thought to a deer that only has 25 acres to live on, period. Because let's say, uh, let's say there's a road on one side, there's a river on another side that we're just going to say they can't cross, and then there's housing on the other side. We can all in our heads picture a place that exists like this in our mind that we've always wondered if they have deer on it. And I can pretty much tell you, I promise you they do. The hard part is how do you get in there to kill them? Because... It is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life is to, sh- is to kill deer in what I refer to as an arena. That's what it is. It's an arena. 
it, you know, it really is. And I mean, to back up, so I, I have a buck on my property that we had, um, I, I think we had him last season. He's maybe 120 inches season before I, we have pictures of him and he was an eight point, maybe a hundred inches, 85, maybe. So he came two years in a row, but he didn't start showing up until pre rut. Mm -hmm. So he was somewhere. And to kind of give you a visual of, you know, the area I'm, I'm working with, it's, it's really a funnel. Um, my property is so you have pastures on both sides and then all the hardwoods have a bayou right on the edge mm -hmm. and it's more so like on a map it's labeled about you know something by you but it's uh it's more like a hard clay bottom creek mm -hmm. um and they have areas they cross it but they like to follow that they like to travel these edges and you know like you have some of this um these tallows that i mean literally they're less than a foot apart from one from one another, and it's it's super thick. And these deer won't come out in these opens until the ryegrass is planted. Yep, if for the winter for the cows and the horses. And then other than that, a lot of times they're in the thick stuff. And I I kind of it's kind of funny, but it's ridiculous. So back to my OCDness about how I was with. I didn't like to go explore because I was too scared that I was going to screw something up by mm -hmm. bumping a deer, pushing them out, and I was just going to blow everything out. Well, they're not going to go anywhere. Uh, I, it's taken me a long time to realize that they don't leave. What you what you're fighting, uh, and what you're fighting yourself on is you're trying not to push them nocturnal, okay? Um, and you're also trying to hunt from the outside in. And a lot of times we stay on the outside, on the outside, on the outside, and we're afraid to go too far in because in our minds that deer is right in the middle of this 10 acres. And if we go too far in, then we'll push him out and like he'll disappear. We'll never see him again. The reality is, is he's just going to go to the far edge or he might disappear for a day or two or a week, but he's going to come back because it's been proven to him time and time and time and time again that that 10, 7, 12 acres, whatever it is, is far less pressured than wherever he escaped from, if you will. And so the worst thing that can happen, and this is what I always combated, is having to um, fight uh, truly nocturnal deer. And not nocturnal necessarily from pressure, like you know, riding a four-wheeler in and checking a camera every two days, or feeding every day, or, or, or being in the woods all the time, but they get nocturnal because they're so much more skittish than a country deer would be, a, a large track deer would be, um, because if you've got unlimited acreage to run away and hide in, you can easily find another sanctuary that nobody's push, nobody's going to pressure you on. And then, you know, a week or two goes by and they'll start coming out in the daylight. But when you're hunting the same deer in the same arena over and over, you're, you've got to be very self-conscious and self-aware on how to hunt it effectively and not push them nocturnal. It's a balance, right? Exactly. And, I mean, another thing is really – I mean, it can be done, but it's very difficult to. The wind where I'm at plays a huge factor. My best winds um, really are a south wind, and anything from the south and east 
is my best. And those are few and far between around this time of year and all the way to January. You know, so it's it's a lot of early season stuff. I did have – so on the neighbor's place, I, I could put a uh, stand up for a north wind. But – so I didn't really hunt a lock on too much. It was more so bouncing around with a climber. Mm-hmm. And you got to be careful with that too you know setting up and all that kind of stuff and yeah it's, it's hard to set up day at the time of a hunt on a small piece of property it, it is. is it's it's very hard and so i went in um i think this was last week uh i went in there to go check the camera and um look at something it's i saw a tree it's a big water oak but this thing's about i don't know 80 foot tall I and mean, it's huge and it's smack dab in the middle of what used to be basically like a clear cut, um, mm-hmm. like a pipeline kind of, so to speak. But, you know, they had just bush hogged this property, I don't know, 10 years ago. And then it grew up to eight, 10 foot briars. A, a rabbit couldn't even get through it. And I was pretty sure I had a bunch of deer bedding in there. And it wasn't, but I'd say 50 yards from where my stand was. And I was, I was too worried to go in there and try to explore. Plus I thought it was unhuntable to Mm -hmm. actually get in there. And I only had one lock on it was set up. So I was like, I can't do that. Well, then I go back in there and my neighbor, he didn't tell me he had cut this and I didn't know it. And so I went in there and I, I ended up seeing this is a highway. There is actually a four way intersection Mm -hmm. where these deer are coming and where this four-way intersection is isn't but 120 yards maybe from where my actual lock-on is right now and i started thinking i wonder how many deer i'm actually missing because where my stand is i i have corn out and all that kind of stuff and it's you know you kind of got to do what you got to do but it's those deer know that that's corn. It's it's not natural. It feed. alerts them of your presence. It hurt on small tracks of land. The only person that I know that has success on small tracks that feeds is Travis Links. He also feeds every day of the year, and he is a feeder that is in the middle of a huge food plot behind his house, and he has bucks that come up to it day and night all year round, and they are not threatened by it. And the reason why is because he doesn't hunt that feeder. He hunts the trails coming into the feeder. But when you introduce food, especially overnight, like just like, bam, here's 50 pounds of corn deer. You know, when you do that freaks them out. Yeah. Because let me ask you this. Okay. So, uh, let's say you left here and you went home and pretend your wife was out of town. You (laughs) knew she was out of town. You get home. You've been with me all afternoon. Imagine there is a hot, ready to eat meal waiting on your dining room table. What would you think? Where'd that come from? And would you sit down and eat it? Hell no, you wouldn't. You, no. no, you'd call your wife. You'd be like, who cooked this? Who put this on my table? I'm not, t- I'm not getting near that. I don't know where this came from. And then, you know, maybe if you get hungry enough, maybe about two or three in the morning, you might come, you know, then you might try it out. Right? Exactly. And so it's the same thing for a deer. If you're, there is no... In my opinion, there's not a great way to half-ass feed deer. Yeah. You either do it all the time or you don't do it at all. Correct. Because if you do, if you try and, and, and toe the line on being in the middle, right, you end up doing more harm than, than, than good. 
because the lot. I mean, th- this happens all the time. I see this on on the in- on the internet all the time. My dear, only at night. What happened? Well, it turns out you just started feeding October first. You know, and how here it is in November, and you don't have a buck picture before eight p.m. Whereas I bet you money that if you set up a camera on that same field edge or that same trail or in the woods without a feeder, I bet that buck was walking through during the daytime before you went in and introduced that, you know, you're exactly right. And that also goes back to, um, to their natural feed. And something I was going to mention earlier is I don't know why I just found this because of how I was saying I like to walk the, the basically the boundaries of the property, and I don't want to get too far in the heart of everything. But over the past couple of years, I've learned that these deer naturally, because it's a basically a funnel of, I would say from as a crow flies to where I have permission to hunt from one end to the other, I know that they are coming. The biggest part of the biggest piece of woods is probably I'd say five six hundred acres mm-hmm. on one side of this road and it just continues to taper down and it gets to a small pinch point funnel and it keeps going and it, and it ends up being a very small finger along this bayou basically like a grown-up fence line and then it opens up to another 40 acres of woods and then it stops right there on the, on another highway where it dead ends. And they just, they travel that. And I found that those deer like to travel on three different areas. It's right next to the bayou in the very middle of the property and on the very front of it. Mm-hmm. And they like to follow those. And I found um, this, this October, I found persimmons, wild persimmons. And I just happened, I was actually going to put a bag of corn out and I was driving. I was, I was looking at the barbed wire fence. You know, I check for gaps of cow horses don't get out or anything. And I see this thing is about the size of a plum. I'm like, what in the world is that? And I look down and it's persimmon. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. This is right here. And, um, you know, keep in mind, you know, it sounds like a rural area, which it is, but I have another house, I think 300 yards from me and these deer are traveling during the rut. We have deer crossing the road during the buck rack bucks. Mm-hmm. I had a neighbor tell me this and I thought he was joking. And I mean, they'll cross the road like this. So it's, they know we're there. They don't care. We're in their world. Yep. And it's, it's just a weird thing that I think we fight. We make it harder than what it actually is sometimes. So one thing that I, I see people do fairly often is, uh, when they when they go in the woods, they'll throw out some corn right then and there. Yeah. Right. Or maybe they'll throw out some more corn in a spot they haven't fed out in a couple of weeks, but they'll throw it out. There's only been one time that that's been successful for me, um, and it was it's ironically one when I was hunting of like a three acre piece of property, and um, I was hunting in an oak grove, and I threw out a bag of corn. And one of my favorite things to hunt over if I'm gonna if I am gonna bait or I need something that's really aromatic is I'll throw, um, I'll mix, uh, corn, grape, Kool-Aid and a bag of sugar together. Right. And you see, so just get a, get a 50 pound bag, get a cooler or, or a big bucket or something like that. And get one of those, um, five gallon bucket or five gallon, uh, mix sizes of grape, Kool-Aid or strawberry, Kool-Aid or fruit punch or so, so whatever gr- grape actually worked. <laughs> great, great, grape worked great. And, uh, and then I'd also throw some sugar in there too. And, um, 
I would drizzle a little bit of water over the top of the corn just to get a little damp so everything would stick together. And then I'd get a big paddle and mix it all together. And then I used to bring it out in um, like one gallon bags to go hunting with me. And that was real aromatic. You know, that that is sweet and uh, has a, a real strong smell. So I was in my mind, I was thinking like it was pulling deer in. The only time I ever had a deer come into it that I just put it out was um, was uh, on a, it was five does that came in and they came in feeding on um, acorns on the ground and then they they were upwind of my corn so they didn't come in smelling the corn the corn was there where they were feeding mm-hmm. so I was in a good spot but I unnecessarily fed also and then once one found a single kernel of corn and you know deer are like walking vacuum cleaners yeah okay I mean it was it was like ooh piece of candy ooh piece of candy ooh like and this deer would just went around sucking up every piece of corn and then once that one was onto it the other four where I mean it was like mob mentality they all came into it and I picked the biggest one and shot it and um that was that worked in my favor then but I got in in hindsight I would have killed the same deer if I had waited another 10 minutes because they were all just walking in circles and eating under these oak trees. Correct. You know, um, but as far as feeding long term, um, I have had a lot of success with deer and just be careful because raccoons love it too with that grape flavored Kool-Aid and corn. And so if you're trying to attract a deer to an area quick, quick, like you're going to throw out some corn on a Friday and you want to hunt it on a Saturday – I definitely suggest some some sort of uh, aromatic attractant like that. Molasses works. Grape Kool-Aid works. Um, when I used to work in an industrial supplier, we had old expired Gatorade in the five-pound bag mix size, and that's worked. Um, really doesn't matter, <laughs> you know. And it's funny you say that because um, I had a buddy that told me he used to do it, I think with strawberry Kool-Aid mix or something like that, mix it with the corn. One thing I used to use, I'd found it probably five or six years ago, was it's made by that Khmer deer stuff, and mm-hmm. it's called corn coat. Yep. And Same same idea. Exactly. Yeah. And it's what I used how I used to do it is I'd so I'd get like 55 gallon plastic drums filled with corn mm-hmm. and I'd, I'd have two of them so I'd take one and fill it halfway up and then pour you know a couple packs of that stuff in take like a paddle mix it all up and then keep you know repeating the process and then what how, how I do it is when I wanted to go bring feed out you know there's corn bags you get when it's already bagged mm-hmm. that stuff's so loud when you're when you're it is You're trying to open yeah. it. So I would take a burlap sack and I would fill that thing up with this already pre-mixed stuff and put it in the burlap sack, go out there. And if I'm going to be hunting the same time that I'm putting this stuff out, I would shake that bag because it's quiet. Mm-hmm. And what it's doing is if you notice that wind, it's kicking that stuff up into the wind and that stuff carries for a little bit. Oh yeah. And so it's kind of like, you know, really come here, deer. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it, it has worked well for me. I haven't done it. I haven't done it in a while. No. Um, I, you know, I kind of stopped hunting over feed about two seasons ago just because I, I was, I wasn't seeing consistent results from it. No. Um, and you know, deer hunting, and I was going to tell you this earlier when you're talking about when you walk in the woods and feel like you're pushing deer out and hunting on the outskirts and stuff. Um, Deer hunting is really just the law of large numbers. Have you ever heard this or or something or some people call it the 10% rule, right? It's the idea that 
you know, if you're a guy and you walk into a bar and you get drunk and stupid, if you hit on enough women, <laughs> okay, if you hit on 20 women, there's a pretty good chance that you might go home with one at the end of the night, okay? Um, you've hit on 100 women or you might, you know, have 10 of them want to talk to you. And it's the same thing with bow hunting. If you, it, it really is about time in the stand. You know, what I think Slade Priest called it butt time, yeah. right? Sitting on your butt in a tree. Um, and during the rut is when you kill them with butt time. And when it's not the rut is when you need to be more strategic about it. And I semi agree with that. I definitely agree with it during the rut. But I, but I also think if you're hunting an area that's small, you know deer are there. And you know they're walking through at some point in time. You have to be there to kill them. You know that whole like can't kill them from the couch Correct. thing? And so the more hunts you make, obviously the more opportunities you're going to have to be in front of a deer. Yeah. The, the, the thing, and I, I believe this about a lot of deer hunting, is it's very hard to be uh, successful with a bow. Especially if only, let's, let's say you only get you know, three days off for Thanksgiving and a week off for Christmas. And you don't bow hunt outside of those holiday dates. It statistically, you're not going to have a very good season if you only get to bow hunt eight times out of the year. Yeah. Okay. If you can make 50 sits in a year, morning and evening, that would be like you know 25 days of hunting, morning and even evening. Um, you're going to be statistically much more successful. And that, I mean, that I, I do think that is a lot of the reason why Harmon kills so many deer is because he's in the woods a lot. Yeah. A whole lot. I mean, half the time I talk to him, he answers the phone like, hello. <laughs> and I'm like, Hey man, what's going on? He's like, man, I'm in the woods. Can I call you back later? And I'm like, yeah, man, just send me a text, you know? And, and so he's always in the woods and it's, uh, I have some friends of mine growing up that every time we went fishing, I would outfish them. And I still to this day rub it in their face that I always, you know, outfish them. And the the sole reason why it's not because I'm a great fisherman. It's because I'm casting twice as often. My line's always in the water. My bait is always in a position to be hit. Right. Yeah. If you aren't in a tree, you can't kill a deer. Period. Correct. I don't care how many trail cam <laughs> pictures you have. I don't care how many bucks you have on your property. If you are there to shoot them, it doesn't matter how big it is. It doesn't matter how many deer you have. Cause at that point in time, you're just observing, yeah. you know, from a distance. And so, um, a lot of the reason why people don't get into bow hunting is because your odds of killing something are so much greater with a longer range weapon, like, you know, rifle, primitive weapon, even a crossbow has a, probably, uh, people think it has a more effective range than a bow, which doesn't, yeah. but, um, but they, they're advertised that they're, you know, at, I'm not saying they're not accurate out to a hundred yards, but you should sell that a hundred yards with a crossbow and how loud those things are. It ain't going to be standing where it was when you pulled the trigger, No, you know, but, um, anyway, uh, it's all about time in the woods, but it's also about the finding the balance between hunting effectively and, making the best use of your time and um not over pressuring the area you know that's it and so the way i'm hunting now is so i don't do any of these you know yeah i still throw some corn and rice bran out but i'm not you know going crazy concoctions or anymore or anything yeah. like that and you know i killed my best buck to date last season and it didn't go the way i wanted it to um you know it was unfortunate is first time I ever put a bad shot on an animal and had to track it, bring a dog, all that kind of stuff. And it was just, it almost kind of, it ruined it for me. 
and I had already been bow hunting. Um, you know, I, I bow hunted when I was younger. Um, my dad wasn't a deer hunter, um, you know, small game ducks, stuff like that. So it was through friends. Um, I think I was probably 10 or 11 and I had remembered the first time I had multiple deer, um, under my stand and I was hunting with a bow improperly fitted. You know, it was like my buddy's younger brother's bow. Yeah. Some old, this is when I think carbon arrows had came out and they don't, they didn't give me those. They said, you know, take these <laughs> heavy aluminum yeah. Easton's or something. And it was pendulum sight on the bow, uh, mm-hmm. you know, all this kind of stuff. And I shot over her back, but I had, I think like eight does in front of me at 30 yards. And it was the coolest thing. And through the years it's, so I didn't really know until I started getting older, really what deer hunting was. You know, it, it, as I was younger, it was box stands and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And that stuff gets old to me in general. You know, there's nothing wrong with it, but I can't do that anymore. I'm a very patient person, but like that buck I killed last year, literally, I first saw him, I think it was the end of October, and it was we were going to make a bow hunt after we worked some cows. And he was already standing in the lane when we got there, and I could just watch him at 70 yards. And that started that whole thing, and it you know, I chased him from one end of the property to another all season. And I got tired of doing that. It's like, I get worn out of, you know, basically sitting there praying, like, am I going to see crossing your fingers? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, so now it's like, I'm at a point now where I, I've made a commitment to myself this, uh, going into the season. I really, other than one of our lottery hunts with a gun, I really want to commit myself to bow hunt only this year. Mm -hmm. It's the first time I ever tried that. And also, you know, my wife and I, we have a three-year-old baby girl and, you know, last season before we had her with my work schedule, I could hunt four days a week, four or five days a Mm -hmm. week. Now I'm stuck to weekends and I know my kills are going to be, you know, a lot smaller, but it's going to be more rewarding. And it's the way you approach things are more thought out. Mm Mm-hmm. And I wanted to start really trying to more so cut deer off because I found that instead of just waiting, um, especially on my primary property, a hunt, it's a timing game. Yep. Yep. It's when they're passing through, because if you think about it, uh, if you're hunting any kind of ag areas in a nutshell, it's kind of like the Midwest because you only have certain parts that are actually wooded. Yep. You know, the rest is either, you know, open field or cow pasture, planted fields, whatever. Some crop that they don't want to eat, like cotton. Exactly. You know? Yeah. If the only exception is they don't cross from, you know, one corner of the field to the other unless it's midnight. Yeah. <laughs> well, so uh, I, as you're talking, I'm thinking about some of the do's and don'ts that I have some rules that I've kind of uh, imposed on myself over the years for hunting small pieces of property. Um, number one. This this was a hard one for me to accept, but the more often you go in the woods, the more you hurt yourself. Yeah. And um, I know not everybody can afford them. Shit, I can't even afford them. Um, but, you know, we, make, we all make time or, or spend money on things that are important to us, right? Correct. I don't think there's a place that is more vital for a cell, cell phone camera than a small tract of land because it's so easy to overpressure a piece of property. With that being said, as you set your cell cameras, set them high on a downward angle to where that flash, even if it says no glow, they still see it. Trust me. 
They yeah. do. I mean, it's no it's no coincidence that every picture you have on that buck you're trying to kill is looking right through your soul in that picture. Yeah. Okay. He knows that thing's there because he hears that tiny click when it goes off and he, he sees that red glow. It doesn't matter how, how bright or, or dim it is. But um, set it high, have it to where it's going to be set off by them passing by and them not see it. Um, that's key. If you have a bunch of cameras that you're setting on property, cameras a lot of times for me have been just as bad of a of a, um, a hindrance of killing a deer as feeding have been. You get a $25 or $40 cheapo wild game innovations camera that doesn't have a glow filter and you set it at three feet off the ground right at their eye level and you have it on every trail that they're walking, guess what? They're going to just they're going to X that place out of their minds. They're going to say, I'm not going to this side of the property anymore. And so if you, if you see confirmation of deer sign, meaning tracks or uh, deer shit or, uh, a, a, you know, an acorn tree that's dropping that they are just tearing it up. My question is, this is rhetorical. Why do you need to confirm there are deer there? Why? Like, because the pictures you get of that deer during daylight technically was your first opportunity to kill that deer. Correct. You know what I mean? That's that's a wasted. You get a picture, you get five pictures of deer in daylight. Congratulations. Those are your first five shots. Yeah. You could have just thrown up a stand and been there to hunt it right then and there. Well, and what's so funny is, so when you were, when you were talking about this and I was, I was immediately started thinking about my stand behind the house and in the summer going up to opening of season I was having some decent bucks and they were in a bachelor group and as they started breaking up it was nothing but does and fawns which is still a good thing but it's the same little group Mm -hmm. and then when I and one thing I had noticed is why aren't there any deer droppings really around this corn that I'm putting out except for maybe 10 yards on the trail entrance, you know, not far from it. But other than that, and it's not very much either. But then when I mentioned earlier how I went and found that that spot inside that thicket, and it's like a four-lane intersection right at the base of a red oak and a water oak that are dropping acorns everywhere, there are deer droppings everywhere. And it's 100 yards from mm-hmm. where I'm at. And it so it it makes me wonder really you know they already know that other corn pile is there how many are are bypassing me or skirting me really yeah well uh the the second rule that i have is and this is a hard one to learn don't touch anything don't cut anything don't touch anything um, I mean, damn near go as far as to wear gloves when you hang your cell cameras because you are living, you are, are hunting in their living room. You're hunting a 25 acre piece of property or a 10 acre piece of property or whatever it is, but you need to go in there with the assumption that that deer knows every leaf branch and what everything smells like. And anything that's changed is going to affect their behavior because deer have a, they have, I've kind of coined this. They have a circle of vulnerability around them, right? It's the reason why, you know, you can have uh, a road in the distance with cars passing and honking and hitting those little, um, 
what are those little grooves cut in the road where it, you know, the wake up lines. Yeah, the wake up lines. You know, you have deer that hit, you have cars that hit that, and the deer never picks its head up. But you know, God forbid, you tink your stand with your bow, and they run off. And so it, it deer obviously are very aware of their immediate surroundings, and they know what's over there, and they know what's right here, and it is not one big sound to them okay it also is not just one big smell to them either um i have had it to where i've gone in and i've cut down trees or i've trimmed limbs before hunt and i'll have deer come in and they will walk straight up to that tree even if they won't smell the leaf they'll just like it's almost like the tree has this aura around it that they're smelling that was me and my scent of my fingers or my hands or my oils and they'll come and they'll they're they'll pin their ears back they'll tuck their tail they'll kind of get low to the ground and they'll just they'll they'll scoot off and and guess what that deer is scared shitless at that point in time it's not going to go near that tree anymore until it's dark because they're that in tune with their environment so much more so than a country deer is you know um the the other thing is that have you ever heard the term crepuscular? Yes. Okay. So a lot of there's nocturnal. I can't remember what the daytime. We'll call it dayturnal. There you go. <laughs> there's nocturnal. There's dayturnal. Whatever that scientific word is. And then there are animals that are what's called crepuscular. And cervids and deer are crepuscular animals. What it means is that their greatest activity time of day is right at daybreak and right at dark. Yeah. And this isn't anything any of us don't know already. Some of us might be hearing the term for the first time, but. Small track deer, small property deer, especially in areas that have human traffic around it, meaning neighborhoods, roads, maybe uh, it backs up to, uh, I don't know, some, some busy highway or something like that. They gauge their vulnerability off of a lot of times the activity around them. A lot of times it's noise. If you're hunting near a road, it's going to be less quiet at 5 a.m. than it will be at 10 a.m. Yeah. It's going to be less quiet in the evenings, potentially, than it will be at 3 p.m., right? And so they are more crepuscular, meaning they, they adhere more to that actual like light, dark time of day than uh, another deer would out in, you know, even a WMA that gets hunted all the time. They, you know, even if they're being pressured by people coming in by boat and four-wheeler and are pushing them all over the property, at least they still have 25,000 acres to run into. These deer only have 10. These deer only have 20. It's almost like... um, it kind of reminds me of uh, the part of the Truman Show with Jim Carrey where he realizes he's on a TV set and he tries to escape by rowboat and he just ends up rowing into the edge of the set yeah. and there's nothing past it. You know, a deer can't go further, you know. Well, they can, but, you know, that's a whole nother topic, you know. Well, as you're saying that last part, I immediately think of they can go it might be a a grown a grown up fence edge mm-hmm. to get to another section of another property it has to be an attachment of some sort but where the issue is is we're restricted because we don't have access to go over there yeah and so you know to, to keep in mind when you're listening to this yeah you have let's call it 20 acres that you're hunting okay so you know, it's not like if you bump them on what, you know, 20 acres is really not that big. So it's, if you were to bump them on the, if you uh, were to bump them on, you know, walking in, 
they might run into the other area, but they mm-hmm. they have a in and an out, an escape route, basically. And if need be, it's going to you know continue on. You're exactly right. They need that attachment point to other pieces of property. And a lot of times it's so small that we don't even... We would never give the deer credit for, you know, a five yard wide piece of tree line being the their navigation route. Or even sometimes just a neighborhood. Yeah. You know, sometimes it's just houses where they know they're not gonna get messed with and they'll just walk through people's yards to get to a, another piece of property. Um the the third rule that I have is kind of repeating what I said earlier about feeding. If you're gonna feed, feed year round. If you're not gonna feed, don't feed. Right? There there's no middle ground there it's either all in or all out um and then the 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 fourth rule that i have is that it is very hard it's almost impossible sometimes to set up a stand the day of the hunt especially in the morning because you got to have a light a lot of times to do it and that light i mean how many times have you seen you've been hunting next to a buddy that's hunting 300 yards away and you can see his light clear as day through the woods right mm-hmm. even if he's not even pointing at you you see the glow you see it over there deer's the same way you yeah. know you're hunting you, you think your deer bedding down two acres over there he's not coming near where that light was 20 minutes before it got got daylight yeah. you know and so my rule and i know i've told this to my friends Chris and Ben Berard a whole lot. I never set up a stand the day, the morning of a hunt anywhere at all. I, I will, my first hunt on a new piece of property or a new area, doesn't matter if it's private, public land, a thousand acres, 10 acres. I will always set up my stand in the evening. If I want to hunt there in the morning, I'll leave it overnight, come back to it, climb up quietly, make my hunt. If I make two hunts in a row without seeing a deer in the same spot, I break myself of that spot, no matter how beautiful it is, no matter how much sign there is, I might even just move a hundred yards, 50 yards, but I don't allow myself to make three hunts in a row in a new spot unless I have a reason to. Um, and so that's, that's my, I think that my fourth rule is don't set up anything in the morning. And then the fifth rule of it is just stay out. Yeah. You know, that's your best thing you need to, if you're going to be in there, you need to be hunting. Correct. If you're, don't go in there walking around trying to scout, trying to confirm that there's deer. You see the tracks. Yeah. You see the shit on the ground. You see the acorns. You see the the rub lines. You see the scrapes. I know we we all, with technology these days and phones and cell cameras and all that stuff, we want to see what we're hunting. But I got to tell you, sometimes the coolest hunts I've ever had are where something shows up that I've never seen before. Yeah. You know, and you're just there ready to kill it, you know. Um so that's, you know, those are my rules of hunting small parcels of land and a couple of things that we've covered today on behavior, activity. Yeah. Um, a, a last thing I will tell you is, and I don't know where you're hunting. It could be more rural than where I've been hunting, or, you know, in South Louisiana, but I would make a lot of really short hunts. Yeah. An hour, hour and a half. Okay. I'm not climbing up at two in the afternoon in December, unless it's the rut to hunt when it's going to get dark at five thirty or six, I'm going to climb up. If I, if I can get there quickly, I'm going to climb up at four thirty, maybe five o'clock and it gets dark at six. I just have seen very limited daytime middle of the day or early afternoon or late morning activity from deer. I don't know if, are you seeing the same thing? Um, like I mentioned at the very beginning, um, I learned that lesson the hard way by just because of how things are set up and with natural food sources. If I, when I tried to go in early and actually beat them and, you know, everything be settled in the stand, Mm -hmm. I ended up jumping deer. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah. Um, because they were already in there feeding a lot of times. Or, no, I'm sorry, they were actually bedded down right next to feed. And, you know, it would hurt things. And another thing um, was with the wind. The wind is the biggest factor to pay attention to. You can do all the scent stuff you want, but even if you're going to check a camera, don't go in if you have a bad wind. Mm-hmm. That's going to blow it to where you're pretty sure they're going to be betting at. Yeah. Because that's going to hurt things also. Absolutely. You know, that brings up, my, I guess, another point that I would make about it, which is the fact that a lot of these crepuscular deer, they're, they, ten, they tend to lean towards the more nocturnal side of being crepuscular, meaning they they stay in, stay in the dark. They make Their movements are at 5.30 in the morning, 5.15. And a lot of times what I would do when I was hunting someplace that I could get there frequently and early enough is I would try and get the stand at like four in the morning, yeah. four, four fifteen, four thirty, because I was getting, I was walking in trying to make a daylight morning hunt, like, like going in 20 minutes, 30 minutes before daylight. But what I was really doing is I was pushing that buck out of here. I was pushing that doe. Yeah. Um, and, and I had to ask myself, well, if I get there even earlier, can I beat that deer? Maybe I'll hang around in the daylight where I could shoot it. And I can tell you with a thousand percent certainty that that never worked for me. Not a single time. Exactly. <laughs> it never did. You know, I, I thought I was being smart by getting in super early. All I did was just waste two hours. Yeah. Literally, that's all I did. Um, and what what my takeaway on that was, very simply, is that they were crepuscular or actually technically nocturnal at that point in time because of me. Mm-hmm. I was making them that way. They're naturally a little more crepuscular. They tow that line of daylight and darkness, heavier being in a smaller tract of land near civilization. They do that automatically, but I was the factor that was pushing them into true nocturnal movement. Yeah. And, um, you know, if I could, you know, take all my experiences of hunting on small tracts of land and everything and, and and combine them into one lesson learned is that, you know, you have to be overly aware of your presence, uh, almost to a self-conscious level of, um, guilt about going in the woods without hunting, because I'll say it again, like I said earlier, why do you need confirmation that there's deer for yourself in order to go in and hunt? Why not just go set up and hunt? You know, this is something that we're getting away from as sportsmen is we need to know that there's 12 deer in the area before it's worth my time to go sit in the sand. I got to tell you, you never know where those deer are going to be. Yeah. And, and if you really want to think like Chris Berard, I was talking with him last month about this. He set up a camera, um, and Ben Berard also his brother, he set up a camera and he set up a stand and he said, I asked him if he was going to go hunt. He was like, no, I'm not going to hunt. I don't have anything good on camera. And I said, why are you telling me that you have the ability to go sit in a stand? You don't have anything else to do. You can be in a stand in 30 minutes from where you're sitting right now. And you're not going to because nothing's been confirmed to you in a photograph. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, I see how ridiculous that sounds. And I said, well, okay, let's think about this even further. A camera has a trail camera has usually anywhere between a 90 degree and a 120 degree um, lens range. Yeah. Okay. So if you, if you take a, a tree, you get, you take an aerial view of a tree and you put the tree that your camera's on in the middle of a circle mm-hmm. and that circle is 360 degrees. That camera only covers 120 degrees, which yeah. is one third of three, 360, one third of that circle. So when you're in a tree, what do you have? 
you have a 360 degree view. Exactly. Right? When you're in a tree, are you telling me that you're going to base your decision to hunt or not hunt on what came into that one third of a circle of where you're hunting? Because that's what you're doing when you're relying on trail cameras to say, yes, I'm going to hunt here. I'm not going to hunt here. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we are too addictive to technology and I'm one of them. Um, but we are sometimes I think lying to ourselves that we're using technology to better our chances in the woods. When in reality, if we think about it from a pragmatic logical standpoint, like I said, you got a 360 degree circle, a camera has 120 degree field of view and you're telling me you have 200 and what 240 degrees that that camera's not picking up that you are technically discounting uh, what if that deer just walked on the other side of the tree what if you screwed up and you thought you had the camera over the deer, deer trail and it was really behind you yeah and so the only way you learn that is from time in the stand so my lesson here is go hunting yeah St- you know stop relying on the cameras and the be- and the perfect conditions and the barometer levels and and all this stuff just go into the woods Enjoy the stand, enjoy your sit, and um, don't let, you know, technology that we work on be the determining factor of whether you do or don't go. We do this because we like to be near deer. We don't like to envision being near deer um, from a distance looking through cameras because, like I said earlier, when you have that daytime photo of your target buck in the stand near the stand that you want to technically that was your chance to kill him it's like and and i'm not saying you should like not go to work you know don't go to work during the week and hunt him because but but if if it's a saturday and you didn't go because of just you didn't have a confirmation of him showing up time after time then you wasted your chance well and i mean depending on how long you were running this camera for i mean that deer might not be, he might not feel like eating corn or rice bran. He might feel like some yeah. actual acorns that day. Or you might have bumped that deer not knowing you did when you were walking in. And that deer just could decide to take a different route, you know, and kind of skirt you a little yeah. bit. And I think another very important thing, depending on the size of the track that you were hunting and the area uh that it's it's in is if it is a small track and you can walk it you need to walk it don't i mean if you're hunting a 10 acre you know plot don't drive your four-wheeler especially if there's four-wheelers not being driven around there or anything like that be very low-key if you need to bring corn or something like that get a very light quiet game cart um, and if you have the opportunity to hunt a track that's in a more rural farming area, if tractors are used, um, or four wheelers, like I know a lot of the cattle farmers around me, they'll go check on their cattle at night or anything like that, riding a ranger or four wheeler. Mm-hmm. That's normal to those deer yeah, because it is done on a weekly basis along with tractors. It may sound stupid to go take a tractor to your stand on a 50 acre track, but if that's an everyday occurrence to these deer, utilize it. Absolutely. Absolutely, man. Well, um, let me ask you this. We're, we're going to, I think we need to wrap it up. Well, for two reasons. Number one, uh, we've gone over a lot of information. Number two, I want to go hunting. <laughs> <laughs> and uh like i said travis links wasn't able to to um to get on the on the phone with us earlier today he had some things he had to do but it's getting 
harder and harder to record these podcasts and keep information current and within the same week as things happening. Um, you know, we started the podcast as what I would call like a reminiscent entrance into the podcast, which is like, Hey, you and I sit down, we talk about deer of the past, mm-hmm. you know, Hey, I killed this last year, or Frank Sullivan's deer from October, 2017, right? Yep. It's past stories. And so I had a whole bunch of podcasts. I want to say it was like 10 or 12 that were saved up, quote unquote, pre-recorded by months in advance. And then I would release them weekly. Well, I'm out of those. (laughs) (laughs) So those are, those are, those are done. Those are, those are gone. And so since it's now obviously bow season, Mm -hmm. it's it's the first week in November now, um, our second week in November, excuse me. Uh, we are getting to more current information. You know, hey, here's what I did last week. This worked. Here's what I did last week, and I got busted. Don't do that or do this. You know what I mean? And so um, hopefully somebody that's listening to this that has been maybe uh, actively avoiding a 10, 20, 50-acre piece of property because, quote-unquote, it's too small to hunt, I think you'd be really surprised as what's living in there. Yes. You know, um, they don't need a lot to, to sleep. They need, they need food, water, and a place to feel safe. And, and a place to feel safe doesn't have to be 300 acres. Like I said, I've killed deer on three. I've killed deer on 25, I've killed deer on 75. Um, and, uh, I think if you went in, if you, I'm imploring you go into those small tracts of land that you might think are, are avoided, you know, um, that there's quote unquote nothing there. So, um, do you have anything you want to add before we, we end it? It's funny. You said about making mistakes is that's all bow hunting is. It's just a accumulation of screw ups over and over again until you got lucky. Well, yeah. I mean, so I, with a flashlight, I, I used to be real cautious and then I'd go, you know, I started using the green headlamp, all that kind of stuff. But then I started thinking, well, okay, I need a light that's going to put out a lot but it can change colors. So it can be white or green, you know, if I need to blood trail at night, whatever. And, uh, so it'd be multi-usage, but I was at a point where I'd kind of cup it in my hand to where it'd be really low key. But then I started, you know, I was like, man, this is ridiculous, whatever. I'm just going to walk in with it. So actually, um, when I was talking to my buddy, I was going to hunt, uh, a section of property. And he said that, um, he said, you know, that stand with that area, you're going to go hunt in the morning. I was talking to him last night. He's like, because uh, we hunted it also the same area last week. He said, I could see you from 120 yards away, like yeah. st- sticking out like a sore thumb. And, you know, it's it's funny like that. So this morning I, I made a hunt and I went in. And this is hard to do sometimes. With the terrain and everything, you want to be low key and quiet, not step on anything. But I went in without a flashlight. Mm-hmm. I had ten deer at thirty yards this morning. Yeah, I mean, it, little things matter sometimes. Absolutely, yeah, and and they get amplified when you go in with disregard on small tracts of land. Yeah, you you don't have the. Um, you don't have the, uh, the the second chance like you would somewhere else, correct? Or you don't have another wave of deer that might come through that weren't with, that didn't see you walk in, but you know they're going to come through anyway. I mean, it like I said, it's like hunting within your house in your in your living room, yes. you know, or in a, in an arena. So, um, man, I I appreciate you coming today. I appreciate uh, you having me, and and I think we learned a lot. I think our people are going to learn a lot. Our listeners. Um, and I hope we start hearing stories about hunting people, killing a lot of deer 
on tiny pieces of property that people are overlooking, yes. you know, or maybe they're, maybe they have them at, have it at their fingertips and they just, they just, you know, discount it because it's not 500 acres, Yeah, you know? So, um, anyway, man, we'll, uh, look, be safe driving back to Zachary. I appreciate you driving in and, and everybody listening. I appreciate the support and uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast. If you've got anyone you want to hear on the podcast, send us an email at info at louisianabowhunter.com or give us some feedback on our new Facebook group called Louisiana Bowhunter Community. We'd love to hear some feedback about the episodes, what you like and dislike about it, and also what you'd like to hear us talk about in the future. A huge shout-out to our two sponsors of the podcast, Cousin Smokehouse and Steve German's Taxidermy Art. We could not put this on without you, so thank you so much for your support. We'll see you all next week.